Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Reproducibility Podcast. Today, you have Sarah and Sam. So I'm Sarah. I'm coming to you from St. John's in Canada. These um, I'm living on the ancestral homelands of the Beothuk, and the island of Newfoundland is part of the traditional territories of the Mi'kmaq. That's nice. Um, and I'm Sam. I'm currently based in the Netherlands, uh, in Nijmegen. Uh, eventually, I'll get the pronunciation of things correct. Nijmegen, yeah. approximately. My family, <laughs> yeah. part of my family is from the Netherlands. So I've not been to Nijmegen, but I spent quite a bit of time in, uh, in Den Haag and in Amsterdam and in, in Ossen in the north. So it's a nice so place. So today, yeah, I bet. Today we're going to talk about slow science. So I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but Sam, do you want to give a bit of an overview of what that means? Yeah. So I, I, I think what I find helpful is thinking of slow science as slower science than what we're mm. currently experiencing. Um, partly it's a reaction to the, the increased pressure to publish acquire funding, um, et cetera, in an increasing kind of more and more and more constantly, which in many ways people think led to aspects around uh, replicability issues, et cetera, because it forces researchers to focus on quantity rather than quality. Um, mm-hmm. If you're trying to output 10 papers a year rather than one, perhaps <laughs> you don't have the time to to dedicate even uh, even enough time to kind of adequately put into those those works. Um, so the idea of slow science is really, I, I guess, a kind of rebellion, so to speak, against the those norms. Um, so the idea that trying to work not only more slowly in terms of the specific outputs, but more deeply in terms of the work that goes into. Uh, work and time, I suppose, into individual outputs, um, but also allowing more time for uh, other kind of non-publication grant-acquiring activities, whether that's uh, better outreach, uh, better just learning <laughs> how, to, how to do this, this thing we call research. Um, but I, I think we kind of have to consider it as a slower than we currently see because slow kind of implies that there's only one speed that works mm. i think whereas i think we can maybe just about all agree that the current speed is too fast but mm-hmm. what slow is perfect i think is is harder to pinpoint so perhaps mm, I, it might just be a personal thing for me but slower than it currently is feels good but how slow that is is going to be variable yeah i like that it's, I think it's a, it's not great to be too prescriptive, right? We want to give space for people to do things the way that works for them. <clears throat> Excuse me. My voice is a little bit fine this morning. <laughs> yeah. I feel like things have gotten in a sense, almost exponentially faster. I don't know if that's an actual quantifi- quantifiable thing we can measure, but I know that like, for example, my supervisor started his, his job here at Memorial university six or seven years ago now. And even he says he wouldn't get a job now, right? Like it, it shouldn't be. And the guideline that I was given was I need to have 15 first authored papers to be considered for a job. For, for a, a faculty for a position? position? Yeah. Okay. For a faculty tenure track position in North America. 
15 first authored papers after a couple of years as a postdoc. That is way too many papers. Cry in the corner for. Yeah, it is not a reasonable or sustainable expectation. But I mean, so I applied for two jobs recently at Mun, and because my supervisor was tangentially involved in the job search, I got to see like who the candidates were, and we looked them up on Google Scholar. And one of them, a postdoc, had like twenty or thirty publications. And I was like, I do not understand how that works. Right. Maybe I know some people go all into it with their jobs. That might be it. It might also be that a lot of them are like smaller conference papers, which is fine. So they they're weighed differently. And like I certainly have more conference presentations than I do first author papers. And I think that's pretty normal. But not all of them have papers attached to them. And it varies by field. I know this, right? Like with um, with the more engineering side, when I was in my PhD, you know, you, you tweak the algorithm and then you can publish a new paper. So every couple of months you can publish a new paper. Whereas when you're collecting uh, EG data, doing any kind of neuroscience or any kind of even behavioral um, experiment, it's going to take several months to collect the data. So by definition, it's going to take you longer. So those are taken into account. But still, the number that I was given was 15 and have an international, you know, a, sorry, a major federal grant and be internationally recognized and this and that. This is not possible. What you're asking is for me to essentially put all of myself in my work and do nothing else. And I'm not interested in that. Yeah. And it's it's kind of this slight tangent, but it's wild to see. I don't think that the irony is lost on the more senior folk that let's briefly say that the standards were lower to be somewhat crass <laughs> about it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's not lost on them that it's, it's harder now. The, the bar is kind of increasing, but I think there is a, a kind of earnestness in terms of like, the, the, there is a genuine, I'm trying to help you like get the job, get the, if you, mm. if you want to get a faculty position, here's, kind of what you need to do it and i i kind yeah. of get that folk folk kind of want to help and show you what's needed and especially when they've been on these searches they've seen the candidates that have got it and i kind of get sort of saying the truth of the current situation it's yes. just it, even yeah. with that kind of positive um kind of rationale for for sharing and all of that, it still places the pressure a hell of a, <laughs> wildly too high, um, particularly on mm-hmm. early career people, particularly um, anybody that, let's say, doesn't have the resources or the capacity yeah. or um, any number of other things that sort of makes these the lower bar for entry still far too high. Yeah, it's almost like you have to be, everyone has to be a superstar. You can't just, it's not good enough to just do good work. Yeah. You have to be exceptional at everything. It's like, that's not possible. And I I definitely appreciate all the support that I get. My supervisor is awesome and is very straight with me, right? He's he's not going to sugarcoat anything. He'll say it's difficult. Yeah. It's possible, but it is difficult and you will be disappointed and you're going to be rejected a lot. Yeah. Okay. 
At the same time, that like the cynical part of me is like, yeah, but who's on the search committee? Like it's it's other researchers. Yeah. Right. So it it like the, those pressures are still there. Is it coming from them? Maybe not. Like I think it's worth thinking about where these pressures come from. Why is it that we're pushed to produce always more, and that's accelerating in the past few years? That's what it feels like, at least. Yeah, and I think, I think there will always be a baseline um, kind of raising of the bar in terms of, oh, I don't know, the as technology changes, we don't have to spend weeks at a time going into library and getting phys- physical copies of, mm-hmm. of so, like that. There's a lot of things that make aspects of the this kind of work much quicker than it used to be. So. So even from that perspective, there will be some aspects that make kind of achieving the same level of output roughly equivalent. However, the rate of that kind of increase seems to be well far outpacing what's feasible or healthy. Yeah. (laughs) And there will always be competition as well. Yeah, it takes less time to do these things. So it takes less time to look up a paper, but there's so much more material. So we're no yes. longer expected to read like the three or four foundational texts. It's like, have you read the million papers that you're supposed to read? No, I got time for that. No one's got time for that. And so the conversation is lost. I think we talked a little bit about this in the in our episode about contributorship, where we we lose that, or at least for me in my experience. I, I don't feel like I have the time to put aside, say, a day or a couple of hours, even a week, to go look into the literature. I read things when I have to, when I'm writing something specific and looking for specific sources. Because there is so much out there, you just, like, you can't, you can't keep up with it. And for, I mean, for me, everything always ties back to large systemic movements. So capitalism and neoliberalism, we can't escape them. Like they have increasingly, I think, infiltrated academia and institutions and put pressure on production, right? This idea that growth is the only way to move forward, that more is always better. But I think we need to really, really push back on that because that's not what I understand science to be. It's not about just more. It has to be about quality as well. Otherwise, you know, what are we doing? And I, th- and I think that's came up in, I mean, many, many discussions around open science, replicability, et cetera, over the last decade, probably longer. I'm pretty sure that, Oh, Merton, maybe, <laughs> actually kind of covered some of these points uh, many decades ago. Just, like, you, you can't maintain quality or the same level of quality given more and more output, right? Like, there's a reason why in mm-hmm. basic production the, the mass-produced stuff isn't as good <laughs> as something yeah. that's actually being kind of toiled up on to make as best as it could possibly be. Um, yeah. But neoliberalism puts pressure on that, on metrics, on measuring, measuring output, 
how many of each things did you do? And that bleeds into things like the, um, I forget the exact name, but the research framework that exists in the UK. You probably could name oh, it. Oh, the, the research excellence framework. Yeah, that. If in doubt, there's the word excellence in most uh. BS enterprises <laughs> like these. <laughs> there's also there's also the teaching excellence framework that is just uh. as pretty universally hated. <laughs> yeah, it's all about measuring and metrics and how do you quantify everything that you do, but there's so much labor in academia that is, I think, can't really be quantified and maybe increasingly so. I don't know. It feels like there's more exploration of bridging the gap between these types of things, like scholarly podcasting. Like, what does that go into? Does that go into scholarly output? Does that go into teaching? Does that go into service? Right? So I don't know how it works in in other places. North America, it's typically research, teaching, and service. And those are the three, like, main activities that you do. But there are many things that don't quite fit into those, right? Like a reproducibility journal club. Where yeah. does, does that fit into? Is that research? Is that teaching? Is that service? I think you could argue for all three. But like you're, you're forced to try to pigeonhole what you do, which I don't think is super conducive to properly evaluating what we do because it's all of it is more general than that. And that this drive towards pigeonholing and getting specific outputs and getting tangible and material outputs is a very neoliberal goal. And we've not been fighting against that hard enough in our universities. And I, I kind of, I appreciate that on some level, like some, some level of categorization, even soft categorization, some, some metrics may be useful, but I do find it interesting how quickly discussions around open science and capturing indexes of quality have basically fallen into the same sort of trappings. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting, may, may not be the, an ideal word. <laughs> it's, it's somewhat disheartening at times to kind of see that there is this attempt to sort of generate something new but in the most fundamental way it recreates the the wheel um mm-hmm. so for example the uh the top top factor for assessing journal quality i think from center for open science and largely again it's a checklist of do they offer registered reports do they mandate open data and so on and it's much more nuanced than something like the general impact factor which is we all we don't need to explain why it's horrible we know it is basically meaningless especially as a way to judge individual Mm -hmm. uh, contributions Mm -hmm. um but then something like the top factor also kind of serves to basically do the same thing maybe in a nuanced way but it's still it still has all the potential trappings it still has that capacity for again once you once you measure something, it becomes a less ideal target or whatever the actual <laughs> phrasing mm. of that saying is. As soon as we know, as soon as we decide how to quantify something, it's gameable, right? Mm-hmm. It's the exact same thing happens and is still happening with the Center for Open Science badges. Like what, what 
do they mean? They're supposed to be indicators of quality as defined by, actually, exactly as you're saying, does this paper produce more? <laughs> does it also have the data and the code, et cetera, et cetera, which I do think is valuable. But the the indicator of that doesn't necessarily highlight whether it's sort of done what it's said that it's doing. Um, mm-hmm. You can get an open science badge from having a heard horror stories about this might have to validate um for having a csv file that's within it says please contact authors for access to data it's like that's not like it's it's very possible that these new metrics are just as either gameable or poorly adhered to um yeah or, or uh policed governed um yeah as is necessary to make them do what they want to do. Um, yeah. So I, I always... Two things. Oh. Yep. I'm thinking about quality and accountability. So I guess to start with, with quality, this came up, we, we both read two short pieces. Uh, we'll put them in the, in the show notes to sort of like start to frame this, this discussion. And in one of them, he talks about quality versus quantity. But then the question of yeah, how do you evaluate quality because quality is different for different people. I think that's an important point. I don't think it's possible to have overall markers of quality that everyone's going to agree on. I think it has to be idiosyncratic because of the variability across all fields, subfields, just individuals. And I guess part of that is addressed in peer review that is idiosyncratic. You get different responses based on different people. And whether you get accepted to a journal or not will depend on who has reviewed it. I've got two papers right now that are in their, I think both their fourth journal. <laughs> and it, it just it just depends who's who's reviewing. So I think it's interesting to think about how we want to measure quality and if we can measure quality. And then the other thing I was thinking about was accountability, because I understand that these metrics, I think, originally were created so that we're accountable to our funders. And I, I, I get that. That makes sense. You know, we're taking public money, the vast majority. It makes sense that someone is watching out and seeing that we're actually doing the work that we said we were going to do and seeing that that work is good and worth the investment from the public. But I think it's gotten too far where we spend so much time trying to meet very specific criteria that we don't have the freedom to think really beyond that or to create beyond those specific things. And it takes really intentionally challenging this system to come up with new ideas of doing things differently, like scholarly podcasting. Yeah. So, no, I, 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 I agree. <laughs> I, I think this, this, it's the danger of. I think that the rebuttal that will always be given to a more nuanced perspective, and a more idiosyncratic perspective, is just simply that we don't have time. And I, I, I agree mm-hmm. on some level. On the flip side, I think if we if we were to focus on 
even if we're considering only kind of the, the standard output, so let's say papers and the materials that surround those, if we were to kind of have the the capacity, the permission almost to mm-hmm. to focus on on fewer rather than yes. hopefully getting as many as possible, hitting that fifteen minimum, um, mm-hmm. then we we sort of have time to to make that quality work. And sorry, so take a step back. So and I think things like that would reduce the amount of output and therefore give more time to be able to assess um, more idiosyncratically. Um, but we can also do things in other ways. So the uh, Declaration on Research Assessment has potential, at least, to improve aspects around the, the judgment and the hiring criteria to at least avoid the the spamming of <laughs> H-indexes and journal impact factors as proxies for measurement of quality. I don't quite think Dora goes far enough, and it's not massively well adhered to. Um, I don't think at the university level, but there are, I think there are some pushes, but I think as you said earlier, Sarah, the pushes need to be stronger. Um, and it, in some ways it comes back to, um, oh, the, the wonderful Talia Arconi blog post of kind of the, we are the incentives, <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. We, we talk about the incentives, but we, we are the people doing the the judgment and the critique of other people's work, or at least senior yeah. academics are. I don't claim to be in a position where I can make hiring decisions and so forth, but we're the ones doing review. We're the ones mm-hmm. acting as gatekeepers. So yeah. we kind of have the capacity in, in every one of these decisions to... yeah push against this um and i'm not saying it's easy um it takes thought yeah. right? it takes effort i think especially to change at first and then once you get used to doing something then it becomes habit i've found this in a lot of big changes in my life right like starting to reduce plastic waste and trying to live like a zero waste lifestyle right at first it was a lot of effort and now a lot of those things are just habit the way that i right the way that I do my statistics has has changed and at first it was a big effort and then it just becomes habit and the way that I think about reviewing has changed recently where at first it was like this chore that I'm not getting paid for and I'm like well other people are actually reviewing my work and taking the time to do it so I'm going to reciprocate and take the time and see it as an opportunity to bring up things that I'm, I'm interested in. So bring up critiques from feminist science of like, can you be more strongly objective here? Can you give more context for your work? Um, have you looked at your reference list? Who, who are you referencing? Are there women there? Are there people of color there? Are there other minorities? Are there early career researchers there? Um, and I often have to talk about the statistics of being like, you're applying Bayesian logic to frequent statistics. That happens all of the time. Um, but yeah, so thinking of reviews as a as a site to spread these ideas about doing science differently, where they're more almost one-on-one with the authors, right? It's, it's mediated yeah. by the journal and 
ish anonymous. I've I've not found any paper I've reviewed recently to be anonymous just because of the way things work, right? Like with a lot of um, pre-registration becoming more of a thing, a lot of these papers would be like, oh, our stuff is all on OSF, but we're not going to give you the link because anonymity. And I'm like, well, if the project exists, I can Google it. <laughs> And I can find you that way, right? Like anonymity just, just doesn't exist anymore. And then another one had like a specific clinic. So I was like, I can look that up, you know, and it's just, we talked about elsewhere, um, I think in the SIFS episode, like anonymity is at the window anyway. But yeah, so it's, it's essentially a one-on-one -on -one conversation that you get to have with the authors. So like using that as an opportunity to slow things down or to bring in ideas about how to do science a bit differently and that's really nice from a uh i guess a bottom-up kind of perspective um mm -hmm. so one of the things i i was curious to to get your take on especially after rereading the uh the frith paper um fast lanes slow science that again we'll link in the in below um so one of the things that came out of that paper um, and sort of sparked, I think, a rediscussion. Actually, I don't think that this proposal was actually new. Um, mm. In fact, very little of what was in the paper was new. But I think it was useful to have a very senior, very famous uh, researcher kind of reshare some of these ideas. Um, anyway, um, so I'm curious. So we we talked about the kind of bottom up from reviewing. I'm curious a little bit to hear your perspective on the more top down kind of almost mandates idea so we're often mm. overly i think we kind of jump the gun a little bit on wanting a mandated solution so what if everybody just had to do x so the proposal in this paper was to uh drastically reduce the amount of papers and grants that researchers are allowed to hold um so i'm and uh, they suggest aiming for only one paper a year, um, at least in their work. So I'm, I'm curious your perspective on mandating a paper limit. Yeah, I. Mm. Again, I think it's too variable for different people, depending on the field, depending on what they do, depending on how they work, to mandate the number of papers. I think mandating the number of grants is a really interesting idea because I, the pattern that I feel like I'm seeing is that if you have a grant, you will get more grants. And if you have no grants, you'll be awarded no grants. And it's just this vicious cycle of like, if you haven't gotten to the ground floor, you're just like, you're kind of toast, which isn't great. <laughs> you know, so it, it's again, capitalism. It concentrates wealth in the hands of a few, right? So it just in increasingly, uh, yeah, concentrates wealth in the hands of the few researchers and few labs that already have the resources. Now, I know that like in Canada, there are efforts um, to distribute more funds. Um, there are some like entry level, just tell us what you want to do and we'll give you five grand. It doesn't really matter if you do it or not, but it's just a way to like spread. I'm like throwing, miming, throwing money around. <laughs> Just like spread <laughs> spread the wealth out a little bit, um, and there are sort of new initiatives being piloted 
to try to encourage disciplinary work. And I think there are certain efforts towards that, but it certainly feels like, you know, part of the criteria to be awarded a grant, what have you, is demonstrating um, excellence. And that often includes, do you already have funding? And so if we could get 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 past that and go, this person may not have secured funding before because they are in their early career and maybe they didn't get the competitive PhD grant or the competitive postdoc grant, but it doesn't mean that their work isn't valuable. So let's like spread the wealth out a little bit more. So I, I, I think I could see a place for reducing the number of grants someone can hold, but I'm not entirely convinced by the number of papers. Because like I have some papers that are experimental based, I have some papers that are neuroscience, and I have some papers that are just like position papers, writing about something. And as long as I have a job, I don't like I don't need a grant to fund that separately. So like I don't want to necessarily have to wait to publish that. Yeah, I was so that I think this this came out I think over a year ago now, possibly two. Maybe three. My sense of time has been ruined over the last couple of years. Oh, yeah, same. Plus, baby... Oh, God, this was as far back as 2019. I remember getting annoyed about these discussions way back then. (laughs) Um, So it shocked me a little bit how how many people were very enthusiastic about the idea of restricting the number of outputs that people are outputs Mm. in terms of papers in this case in terms of Mm -hmm. um numbers and there was a lot of discussion about like what that number should be rather than whether this is a good idea in the first place and i i found that quite stark because it it doesn't take much to think about how this is going to benefit some people and not benefit others if if you're a Mm -hmm. a pi in a lab with three phd students you're going to who gets the, the publication? Yeah. yeah. Who, who gets the publication? Which journal Ooh. is it going to be in? And so I, I can kind of see it just making exactly what we're looking at kind of worse. Um, yeah. Plus, you can never it, tell if something's going to be published, right? Like, I have things in the pipeline right now. One of them started last year, two of them started four years ago. Yeah. Just because of the way that publishing works, it takes so long to go through the process that, like, how can you really plan those things? Oh yeah, how many early career people would there be that would be looked at? So, oh, you, you didn't publish in. Well, I was going to say twenty twenty, but there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, let's, let's say twenty fifteen for the sake of a, a less. Or well, in fact, that would be pretty bad for some people. Every year is horrible. Yeah, I think twenty twenty would recent... probably have more publications because people had time, maybe depending on their their home context, <laughs> to actually work on the data they had. But then when they couldn't collect data, that's going to have a mm. delay. So there might yeah. be a gap in like 2022, 2023. Well, and that's it. Yeah, e- even 2020 is the, the rev- there being less people to review. Like all you need is your review to be right. delayed by three months and suddenly you don't have yeah. a publication that year, right? Yeah. So like that, there's yeah. so many little things that I can imagine would kind of basically tank <laughs> somebody's application yeah. uh, based on their publication record because of something like this. Um, and let's say we increase the numbers a little bit more. One of the things that I'm seeing, uh, so I'm currently preparing a fellowship application myself that does 
they've sort of tried to avoid the the number counting, but they also have like a their maximum number of papers that you can uh, include is ten, and the advice is basically if you include less than ten, eh, have you done enough? And I'm sitting there going, this is supposed to be a grant for people that are a few years out of their PhD. Mm. So what what counts? How is this judged? And it's so it's it's interesting Ooh. how initiatives to try and kind of again be more slow science, slower science based, can still have actually quite an inequitable uh kind of threshold and again adherence yeah. to uh whichever metric <laughs> is mm-hmm. uh convenient accessible uh yeah time i wonder um, if it would be somewhat useful to have like a rough guideline of like if someone publishes a paper per year they're doing good work just fine but not to like restrict it to one paper a year to be like yeah, I don't know. It's it's tricky to use the right words because then if you say, okay, this is good, well, then someone's going to go, well, I want to be excellent. And then they publish more and then, mm. you know, already, so the whole thing is at the window, like immediately. So I, I don't know. It's a, <laughs> I don't know what the solution is. I, I think this is a great I want less, of, but I don't know that I want yeah. to like mandate a number. I, I, I think mandates will always get a kind of, <laughs> kind of response. From me, and and actually in in this paper, it quite nicely. You, you know, when people kind of like say something, but they don't quite realize they've they've said it. Kind kind of like when a racist basically outs themselves. Mm-hmm. That's not what happened here. Just to be very clear. Um, but the, the follow up point to reducing the num- or limiting the number of publications is that um, this could lead to new models of science communication, and could overcome some of the. Uh, kind of issues of traditional journals and kind of maybe solve credit issues. And I couldn't help but sit there and go, we've got preprints. So if we limit the number of papers and people have one per year, great. There's still going to be somebody that has 20 preprints <laughs> versus versus somebody that has five. So we still fall into that potential for, mm-hmm. for kind of bean counting. And I'm... This is not to say that there shouldn't be things that are done. I think it's not too difficult to assess, for example, candidates for jobs or fellowships and and so on, limiting to like a maximum number of kind of these are the most relevant papers. Great. Yeah. Something like that to me makes sense because you can avoid at least some of the kind of metric counting. It's no way perfect, but it feels a lot more... Uh, kind of, you can integrate it much better with the different requirements and kind of standards across fields, yeah. for example, in career stages. Like, what are your top three contributions? What do yeah. you conceive to be your top three contributions to your field? And then you can, yeah, pick your strongest. And don't get me wrong, there will of... be problems with that too. <laughs> but it feels less. It feels less of a mandate, and it feels more trying to push us to do, as you said, kind of assess researchers in a more holistic way, assess their contributions in a less kind of metric-based, how much has been produced kind of way, and actually gives 
again, that capacity to try and assess quality rather than quantity. Because mm. at the very least, you've kind of capped quantity to a certain extent. Um, mm. In terms of how a candidate, a research line, something is assessed. Yeah. Um, yeah, to restrict, you're not assessing the entire thing. You're assessing this portion of it and comparing those between people. And again, like you said, there's, there's going to be problems with that. But I feel like it's maybe marginally better. Anyway, it reminds me in talking of preprints about what, how open science may or may not support slow science. So things like, I think a registered report supports slow science because it encourages thinking and critiquing things before data is actually collected. I think that's a really great way to, to slow down a project to make sure that it is of quality. But things like preprints, I feel like do the complete opposite, where there are so many more preprints than there are papers, and how can you possibly keep up with reading them? And as far as I understand, part of the advantage of a, of a preprint is that people can give you feedback right away. But like, I don't spend time looking for preprints to give feedback to. That is not right part of my... My workflow, I do not have time to do that. So preprints, in a sense, multiply the output that we have, mm. which is advantageous potentially for applications, given the context that we're in. But if we're talking about slowing things down, preprints kind of aggravate the problem. Yeah, I guess it depends how preprints are used mm. um, in, in that sense. So a, a preprint used more as a postprint, I think, kind of, I mean, basically you're getting around open access issues or attempting to. Mm. So I, I don't think that adds to it as much. I think if it's used as a feedback mechanism, then it feeds into slow science in the sense of errors can be detected in an extreme case, but also it can kind of make more public the aspects of feedback review um kind of changes in manuscripts and so on i think that the challenge that i see for the most part with preprints is the clarity behind like the rationale for for it being posted um it's like for for me i post everything as preprints largely so that i can get green open access for for everything um and for the most part very little will change in the manuscript and so on. For for other fields, they only have preprints, right? It, they throw it up on their archive equivalent and peer review happens in the open and don't have to worry about... I mean, there is still peer review, but you're not kind of doing it through the journal mechanism that we're all so fond of. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, right. I guess as to me, it doesn't reduce the problem of many outputs. Like preprints, in a way, encourage more output. Oh, yeah, totally. Then, um, which is, it feels contrary to the slow science ideals. I think, I think it may be contrary to the slow, but I think it feeds into the open. Yes. So I, 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 it's maybe a, a different... A different goal that it meets while also somewhat <laughs> potentially hindering the other one. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm, I'm interested in thinking about the limits of open science. We did one episode about that. We'll keep talking about it. And where, where does open science, um, not great against, but where is it in opposition to other goals that we find valuable? Yeah. Right. So in what ways we want slow science, we want open science. In what ways do those things work together? In what ways do they clash? Can we harmonize them more? Can we make one serve the other or serve? Can we make them serve each other better? And how can we reduce that, those, those clashes? Hmm. I like that. Um, so I guess as we somewhat head closer to the, the end of this, I want to make one, one final pivot from the Frith paper talking about slow science. Mm-hmm. Um, and move into the the public sphere of kind of open open science slow science um and think about how similar to you were talking about the the tension between the kind of slow science and the way that we discuss and disseminate science which tends to be much quicker <laughs> even mm-hmm. if we're talking about slow science so you, you made you made the point about um registered reports for example um and something that i've definitely seen is or are discussions that immediately see something that's a registered report as much more trustworthy than something that isn't a registered report mm. and it's a very kind of reflexive i i understand the rationale for registered reports increases quality in some ways it has additional transparency blah 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 but there's a very uh i guess not slow science friendly critique uh that goes into that where we again assume that certain metrics or indicators automatically mean quality or low quality Mm -hmm. in some cases and particularly within the open science sphere that is so active on on social media, uh, particularly Twitter, that is not a friend to slow, slower conversations, uh, just no. purely by the format. Um, so we, we kind of have this situation where whatever the speed the science is going, the discussion of that science is very quick, as is the critique, whether it's slamming a paper as sort of see far too often that has its own issues or whether it's being overly positive about a paper um as i'm sure we've all seen at some point or another for those who mm-hmm. do the, the at the minute feels like doom scrolling on twitter 99 of the time um of oh that 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 paper looks good lots of people are talking about it and then two days later it's kind of like yeah you, is it <laughs> Is it really mm-hmm. like there's there's mm-hmm. these issues actually conceptually there's problems with it um, as well as feeding into a number of other issues that we could talk about. Yeah, for sure. I think it's interesting to talk about um, slow critique as well, which is the topic of the other paper um, that we were having a discussion around. And yeah, how fast is on Twitter? So I I'll I guess admit I don't know share. <laughs> that uh, most of my Twitter is not academic. I made a very conscious decision to move away from academic Twitter. Um, for me, it was because there was 
so much pressure it felt like to produce. Everyone was talking about all the papers they were writing, all the things they were doing, all the tools they were creating, all the things they were reading. And I was like, I cannot keep up. And I feel like I'm not doing enough. And I don't want to feel that way because the work that I do is enough. And so I consciously like don't follow those spaces. But I, I also hear good things, mostly from feminist contexts, about how helpful Twitter can be about how it, like they'll talk about what a great community it is and how they get awesome feedback and generous feedback and they're held accountable, but in good ways that are not about tearing each other down, but building each other up. And I think that just sounds so nice, but I'm not like entirely sure just where to find that or like how to curate my feeds to achieve that I think there's like I said the word accountability there's no tolerance for shitty behavior in these kinds of spaces um, and they're a lot more generous I think because those spaces are lacking elsewhere in the Twitter sphere there's like a need to create that as mostly as far as I like the ones that I know of all like marginalized people of, of various on various identities. Yeah. So this idea of public scholarship is also really interesting to me, right? Where you, you work through things on Twitter and you share your ideas and you debate things and you, and like in a really constructive way. And I'm like, wow, that sounds so good, but I've not figured out <laughs> how to like achieve that for myself yet. It's definitely a challenge. Um, and I've, I've definitely not mastered anywhere near of this and I'm actually a lot less active on Twitter now than I used to be for exactly the reasons that, that you described. When when the world feels like it's burning, I kind of don't need to hear about the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the latest paper or yet another Bayesian frequentist slap fight kind of nonsense. Um. <laughs> right, yeah, like our engagement with with activism, this is something that I've been thinking about the past couple of years as well. And I think I've mentioned before, I decided to leave academia at the beginning of COVID. And part of the reason that I've been convinced to, to stay is that I know that people are doing things differently. It's communities like SIPs, like reproducibility, that are trying to do things differently that convince me to, to, to want to stay, to take my time, to do things differently. The positive yeah. constructive spaces, I think is a really important point. And it's mm-hmm. in theory, it's something that's curatable um, on Twitter, but then there's also many, many ways that that can, can break down as well. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's unfortunate to see kind of the, the open, open science community very much, engaging in basically exactly the same culture that i think in general they think they're above so trying to thinking that things are more equitable thinking that critique is uh fairer more based on quality um and so on but then you have conversations that are trashing some early career author for not engaging in some behavior you get a a bunch of papers trashed that rightfully so critiqued 
some aspects of kind of open and reproducible science, whether it's pre-registration is not necessarily perfect. Um, mm. And doing that in a very actually slow science, thoughtful way. And then you get a white guy that publishes the same arguments in a much less well-written way. (laughs) And everybody, there's a very quick, oh yeah, this is great. We should have thought about this before. Um, There's some Mm -hmm. some good points raised here. And it's it's a shame to see the, the same wheel being created in a way that, it, it yeah. shouldn't be the the open is there for a reason, <laughs> like yeah. It, and part of that is is having a space where the critique can be slow and thoughtful and not call outy and awful. Um, in a yeah, in a previous episode, we we talked about kind of getting feedback at conferences, and I think it's kind of similar. Like, there's thoughtful feedback and critique, and there's just senior researchers being a dick <laughs> yeah and and the exact same yeah. thing happens happens in the open science field which is a which is a shame because ultimately it it harms the aim of trying to be an inclusive space and i've, I've yeah. talked to lots of people that have explicitly said that that's their reason for not wanting to be involved at the very least in the community side like yeah great i agree with the principles I also don't want to be involved in a place where there's just people saying horrible, horrible stuff mm-hmm. who should, who are usually in positions of power. Um, and <laughs> again, Twitter is great because you can curate your, um, your feed. However, when a community isn't critical of the members of that community um as exactly you said it needs to be a community that doesn't tolerate intolerance um yeah because how do you enforce that right it's trying to figure out how we're going to do that together how we're going to hold people accountable for what they say or how they say it and it, it takes work but i think it's doable i mean it comes back to again systematic issues of white supremacy and heteropatriarchy and I think we can chip away at that in many different ways in speaking up in groups. Unfortunately, it, if only minoritized people are speaking up, they're probably going to be smacked right back down, which is why we need allyship from yeah. senior white men primarily. And other, like whatever position of privilege you hold, I, as a early career white woman, there's a certain amount of power that I hold. And it's figuring out how to use that in in spaces calling out things when you see them but the the more power someone has this sounds silly then the more power they have to make change like of course <laughs> like obviously but we need those people to be willing to do that yeah i think one small way that occurred to me in terms of talking about like oh this this famous person wrote the thing then it becomes popular one way we can fight against that i think is through citational politics right choosing very carefully who we cite. So instead of citing that person that wrote that paper that got real famous, where do those ideas originate? Cite that instead. Yeah. And it's, that's, it's difficult. It takes effort because even like search engines will prioritize white dudes. 
Like just it's just yep. it's so built in. But I think talking to each other, networking, we have those networks amongst each other, amongst ourselves. And we can choose refusal. I think that's a very, very powerful thing that I've come across mostly in indigenous scholarly writing. This idea of refusing to do something, refusing to buy in to this the spaces, just and saying no to people you're not allowed in this space, refusing to cite certain people if you wanna go the citation way to say, you know, these this is my list of people that I'm never gonna cite, maybe. I don't know, that might be too extreme or it might be something that you choose to do, but there are, are ways of placing boundaries for our own mental health. And then I think if we're talking about slow science in general and open science in general, to improve those things and make them safe spaces. Yeah. So I guess I guess we're probably coming <laughs> coming close to time. So I wonder if maybe uh maybe if we both give a quick summary of uh I don't know what what, what slow science thing do, do we see as I don't know important what what mm. take homes do we have from from this nebulous and branching uh conversation. Mhm. Oh, good question. That might be putting you on the spot. I, I, uh, <laughs> That's okay. I mean, if I think of slow science and how I, I want to do it, I think I've already slowed down quite a bit from my decision to to leave academia and then come back. Like my, I'm still doing a lot, but I am intentionally also saying no to things hmm. and only doing as much work as I have the capacity to do while keeping my evenings and my weekends free. And so my output is going to be reduced, but I have decided that I am okay with that. And I will be looking for a job in academia. If I get one, great. And if I don't, then see ya. Like, I don't, I don't (laughs) care enough, but that is a privilege that I have. And I recognize that, that I can make the choice to slow down so I think it comes I don't know on an individual level there's a lot that you can do and making that choice can make a difference and then where you can apply pressure in a systematic way like speaking maybe to your your supervisors who are senior about what it's like to be on a excuse me like a, a search committee or editors that you may know how you do your reviews. I think all of that comes into play. How you interact on Twitter. Like all of these things that we've touched on are all actions that we could take individually, but they are also all sites where we can apply systematic pressure. Nice. So choose what works for you. I think that to me is a takeaway. We can't all do everything, but choose something that's going to work for you. Yeah, I like that. I think. I think for me, the... The word that kind of carried on coming up um, was accountability. Um, and I really like that as a framing for whatever we mean by slow, slower science, whether it's trying to produce less in the pursuit of quality over quantity um, or do things kind of differently um, for kind of similar reasons. That 
that accountability of are we are we relying ourselves on metrics that we know are meaningless are we um are we kind of compensating for a lack of time a lack of resources by uh kind of neglecting to to pay attention to these factors that we know are both a result of and cause further inequity um Mm-hmm. And as you kind of just said, we sort of have the the individual and the collective power to do something about that. Um, mm-hmm. And related to that, then I guess is the your to bounce off your kind of last point about having the privilege to do things is that at the very least, the more senior you are, you you are the more potential privilege you have to be slower mm-hmm. right <laughs> like you mm-hmm. you're not under anywhere near as much pressure to put out as much as possible to chase whatever metrics and that's not to say that there aren't pressures it's to say that there is the privilege there to not being count and chase numbers and mm-hmm. there there are things that can be done at all stages and exactly as you said the mm-hmm. the the kind of privilege that you have is power <laughs> in this yeah. case um and we can we can use that whether whatever slow science means to us like it's doable on mm-hmm. some level and mm-hmm. it's doable from an individual and collective perspective that doesn't have to rely on over the top mandates or similarly fast and thoughtless critiques of what should or shouldn't be the case based on our own definition of slow science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in a sense, change can be collective, right? Pick pick one thing that you can do to start with. And once that becomes normal for you, pick another one, you know, slowly add one thing at a time to change because it, it takes a lot of effort to make a change and not everyone has the capacity to change everything at once. I'm like, you can't, but it reminds me of, um, of Miriam Kaba saying, you know, nothing worth doing is done alone. And so we, we have that collective power as well. I think that's well, part of, I think what we want for this community, for our listeners, for reproducibility more widely as a community is that we're there to support each other in making science better, however we think that that looks. That might I be think a nice that's the perfect place to. to yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. Um, if you want to start your own reproducibility journal club, check out the website at reproducibility.org. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah underscore Sove. Where can we find you, Sam? Uh, I'm Sam underscore D underscore Parsons. It sounds Very more good. Like saying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that'll be in, in the show notes. Check out the readings that we have shared there. And we will see you next time. Thanks, everyone. You listen to Reproducibility Season 2, Episode 6, Slow Science. This episode was hosted and produced by Sarah Sove and Sam Parsons 
and edited by Jan Fornhagen. For more information, visit reproducibility.org. Thank you for listening.